This is the, that Jesus the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep, in, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is God's word. All right, you may be seated. If you have kids, you can take them to the, uh, the kids' ministry areas. Uh, zero to two will be through the lounge. Okay. Um, and the rest go in there. The kids already know. They know more than me. That's how this works. All right. Um, so uh, I want to explain kind of the, the different ways that we worship. Actually, this really coincides with kind of what we're going to be talking about today. But when we gather together as a church, we want to be very intentional about kind of what we're doing. And so that's why I came up earlier and uh, we had a time of adoration. Actually, before that, Mike and I chit-chat a little bit because we really believe in, in family and community and we don't want this to feel like a show. Um, and then we, we adored God and, and praised God and, and Christ for who he is. And now we're going to spend some time studying and, and then we'll have a time of confession, a time of silence. Uh, and the reason why we do that is often we don't have silence in our lives and we don't spend time just confessing or, or thanking God. And, and so we'll have our adoration and teaching and confession, and then we're going to respond to the grace of God and thanksgiving by song and by communion and, and giving and singing, and then we'll share a meal together, which is pizza tonight. Uh, yeah, possible gluten and dairy-free options? Probably not. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to decorate a tree, like a big happy family. Um, so uh, we're going to be in, in 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, 1 through 5 uh, today. Um, I'm going to pray and, and we'll begin to jump in. Father, thank you so much for being who you are and being a good father. Uh, one who calls us and brings us together, one who sacrifices for us. And as we reach out to you now and ask that you would give us your word, I ask, Spirit, that you would do work in us. And Christ, that as you overcame the world, you will show us how we can do the same thing and how we are doing the same thing and, and what that even means. And, and Spirit, as as always, I want to hold very loosely to my plan and, and say, do what you will with this time of worship. Um, just, just call us deeper into love with Christ. In your name, amen. Uh, so this year, we're working our way through the book of First John, uh, which it's great because it's December and we are in the last chapter, which means we are doing good on t- We are going to speed up the end, uh, but we kind of planned that and then accidentally redid it. Um, and so the, as we've been going through, we've kind of realized that the book is composed of uh, a bunch of kind of mini-series where John will take uh, an idea, concept, a word, uh, and then he'll look at it, and then he'll expand and, and expand and expand in kind of an echo form to see how it relates to other parts of, of life and how it's all interconnected. And, and so the mini-series that we're in today, and, and will be till the end, is gospel, which is great because we love the gospel. Um, and we're, we're going to finish the year with it. And so um, as this is kind of the, the, 
the very last chapter, and we're looking at the last theme, um, I wanted to, to look at something that was not often talked about, I think. I think when we read things like 1 John chapter 5, 1 through 5, we can come away with the idea of, of Christianity as moralism. Uh, a lot of times when someone finds out, I'm a, well, they have a lot of different reactions when someone finds out I'm a pastor. Uh, a lot of it is disbelief, but a lot of it is, oh, wow, you must, like, you're a good person. I'm like, you don't understand the gospel. Uh, that is the opposite of what I am. Like, I, like, this is a thing. I recognize I have some deep flaws, and, and, and God is growing me. I don't, I don't follow Christ to be moralistic. Um, and so I, I, we, we're kind of looking at different themes in this section, and I think really to understand the, the passage as a whole, we really just need to understand two key ideas. And, and so with that comes two questions. And the questions are, what is the world? Um, and the second is, how, what does it mean to overcome it? What is the world? What does it mean to overcome it? And, and I, that, that's it. That's our two points. So I only have three pages of notes, and Andy has three pages of announcements. So we're going to have a contest <laughs> to see who's the better pastor. <laughs> he doesn't know we're having that. Well, he does now. Um, so let's start with uh, what is the world? First uh, John chapter 5, 1 through 5. Do you have it? If you got it, say, I've got it. Uh, We're going to just read verses 4 and 5 to start out with. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Uh, What does it mean when he writes the word world? Because if I'm looking at this this concept of overcoming the world, it seems kind of domineering, right? You're overcoming something, you're challenging something. It's it's like when when people read through Ephesians chapter six, and we'll talk about that later, and and, uh, I I watch a series or something, and generally in the series, they'll have like this really ripped Viking guy, right? And he's got the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith, and it's very aggressive, but I've never killed anybody with love or joy or patience, And so we have a tendency to flip these concepts and make them kind of overbearing. And I wonder why we do that. And so I think it's really important to ask, what does John mean when he says world? What are we to overcome? And it sounds like a simple question. And maybe even asking the question, writing this and making this a point, I was like, dude, that that is just too base. It's too base to actually press into, but... I think it's important to ask because it affects how we engage practically with the outworkings of our faith. Do we overcome the world? Do we love the world? Do we serve the world? What do you mean world? And why are all these different things placed in connection to it? And so with John, as we've been going through the book of, of 1 John, Andy's been reading John, 1 John every week, and I've been reading the Gospel of John. And uh, both are good. You should do both. You guys should just read your Bible. That's a good thing. And, and so as I've been reading through the Gospel of John, I've, I've really believed that it's important for us to understand world from the Gospel's perspective, uh, because that Gospel radically influences his epistles as he writes them. His explanation of Christ's life and, and his journey with Jesus informs us how we should read and understand what he says in these books. And so um, I'm not going to make you turn there. In the Gospel of John, 
Uh, the, the word world is used in many different ways. Actually, I found 10 specific different ways. Uh, but the kind of the primary overarching ways is, is the physical earth, uh, all of the universe. Uh, actually, the word world is, is mostly cosmos, so that's where uh, we get this idea of the physical uh, universe. Um, and then it's, it's used of non-believers, but the most interesting concept of, of world used in the Gospel of John creates a trail through the book. So if you really want to nerd out, talk to me afterward. I'll explain it in a very short way right now. Um, world is, is used to describe a system influencing the world. And actually, if, as you open the book of John in chapter 1, he begins to, to breed this story and this idea that there are really two systems influencing your life on a daily basis. Uh, in a big, big scale, and a very, very small, small, everyday scale. And so John opens with this idea that, that in the beginning there's this light, and this light is the life of man. It, it offers life. And, and, and he brings in this, this light, but then gives it an opposition, the darkness, and he says, the darkness hated it. And you, you feel a tension, almost a battle, but that the darkness could not overcome the light. And then John goes on to describe the baptizer, John the baptizer, heralding in Christ and saying, Jesus is the light of the world, and the darkness did not understand him. So there's this weird introduction to the gospel of John, that there's light and Darkness, and that, that light is applied to Christ. And then as you read through, you see Jesus asking interesting things about what you believe and what you want. He closes with, what do you love? Do you love me? And, and in the middle, John chapter 12, Jesus has this interesting discourse about his crucifixion coming. Now, his apostles didn't understand that it was crucifixion, but he then describes that that is how he's going to defeat the darkness, and that darkness is attributed to Satan called the ruler of this world. Then he does the same thing again in John chapter 14. I will destroy and conquer the ruler of this world. In John 12, Jesus overcomes Satan, and then John 17, he says that he overcame this world. So now it's not just this darkness and, and this ruler, but the world itself. And you see the, the world kind of transforming into something new. And as he's praying to the Father, he says, I've overcome this world, but I pray that you don't take them out of this world, but they remain in this world, and that this world will hate them, but that you'll give them strength to follow me. In John 18, Jesus says to Pilate two very interesting things. Uh, first, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then secondly, he says, my kingdom is not from this world. And that's really important distinction. And, and what we see is a progression working throughout the gospel of John. I'm, guys, I whittled this thing down from four pages, just this part. Uh, so I ho I'm hoping you're grasping. Um, there's light and dark. There's Christ and Satan. There's two influencers in this world, right? Jesus brings in his kingdom, and Satan has this kingdom of darkness in this world. And then he names the two kingdoms, uh, light and, and the world's kingdom under the influence of Satan. And so as the gospel of John progresses, you see Christ praying at the end that as we dwell within a physical world where we exist, 
with two major influencers that we would choose light rather than dark. Does that make, does that make sense? Uh, our world, our existence, life on earth is lived under the influence of those kingdoms. Uh, Paul, the, the apostle, explains a little more in depth in Ephesians chapter 6, where we we're just talking about all this armor. Um, but he explains that there, there are dark spiritual forces influencing our governments and our culture, our, our philosophies, the world's different ages and time periods, that it's affecting everything that we experience, that light and darkness are continuously at war until Christ ushers in totally the new kingdom. And so you live in a world where there are two kingdoms, and those two kingdoms are fighting for your worship. I was made in the image of God, and so we are called out of darkness into light to worship God, or we can stay in the kingdom of darkness. And you see that worked out in John chapter 3, where Jesus says, I've not come to condemn the world, but the world, if, if you do not follow the light, the world is already condemned. So there's darkness and light calling for worship. Does that make sense as a concept? Okay. I feel like I'm all up in my head. I'm like, Dah! and here's the problem. Because I see it everywhere. Like the last month, I'm like, there it is, and there it is, and there it is. Uh, and it's driving me nuts. Um, so, so, okay, the concept I get, but how does that affect me personally, right? I can say, oh, there's light and there's darkness. Be in the light. I want to be in the light. And I, uh, I used to be in a traveling magic show, and we used to have to sing that song. Uh, I didn't actually sing it. I lip sung it, and that's humiliating. Um, how does this affect me practically? Like, how does that work out? I get up and I, and I go do my, my normal routine. How does that actually affect everything we do? How does the dark kingdom in this present world affect me? And what is its goal for me? Because I believe that when, when John is saying, okay, you've overcome the world, he's talking about this dark kingdom, the, the kingdom that is against the kingdom of, of Christ. And, and if if it's here, how do I recognize it? And I think at its very base, the world, its goal is simply that you would not love God or worship God. I think we, we tend to over... We think of like, oh man, there's, there's these spiritual forces out there and uh, they're scary and big. No, I mean, some are. But I think we, we categorize them incorrectly. I think anything that'll get you not to worship or love God is just fine with the world, with darkness, with, with Satan. And so if its goal is that I would not love God, and we find that God has written a beautiful story about his love for us that we call the gospel. And we see this, this perfect creation come into view and, and a rebellion against God. And then it's time of, of promise. And then we see the, the crucifixion resurrection, like landing right in the middle and promising a new kingdom. And now we're in this church age where we are, we're the kingdom of Christ in the kingdom of darkness. And, and we're waiting for a total redemption. If this is a beautiful story that God has written for us, and at the end of it, we find our greatest love and joy and satisfaction in relationship with God. The question is, how do you compete with that story? And I think 
the only thing is to offer us really two things in order to keep us from loving God. Uh, the, the first is, I think it offers us beautiful stories that fulfill us now. I think we, we are inundated with world systems that are calling us not to have a gospel worldview, but to have a secular worldview. And what I mean by that is, instead of believing the gospel and then viewing finance within that, we view finance and then we pick what we want from the gospel and put it in there. And then at the end, we realize, man, the gospel's really about me. And so it gives us beautiful stories, uh, narratives, false narratives that promise that we're going to be fulfilled, that it's going to solve my political problems and, and my financial problems and fix poverty and, and fulfill my desires. And, and if I only follow this thing, I'm finally going to reach what I've always wanted. We call this marketing. That's really what it is. You ever watch a beer commercial? Uh, you, you watch a beer commercial and, and the guy's leaving work and he's tired and he's got a terrible boss and he hates his tie and he gets some sort of beer, whatever beer, and, and uh, all of a sudden life is great and he's at a party and he's got like a, a great wife who's just feeding him grapes or something. You're like, oh. And, and what, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're filling ourselves with what do you want you could be fulfilled you could be fulfilled. I actually just saw an ad this morning, uh, not an ad, it was a post, and it said, how much money you have to make to be happy in Phoenix? It was 106,000 something. And I was like, how much money you have to make to be happy in Phoenix? (laughs) No one's happy in Phoenix, (laughs) dummy. Um, But I thought, wow, how... How intriguing is that? Because I've, I've heard statistics like that before. Well, man, you've got to make this much money to, to finally be out of this line, out of the poverty line, out of lower income line, and, and you just got to keep pressing, and, and one day you're going to achieve it. And it promises you. And so what you chase and what you give yourself to is making this money and, and driving in and, and really forcing it, and then you get there and it always fails. But what it's done is distracted you from the the story of the gospel, and you give yourself to worshiping works to make money so you can have happiness. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why I'm seeing it all the time is um, Rosie really likes to watch YouTube, which I hate. Um, but we have it on our TV, and so I can see it. And she really just likes to watch. There are some weird people out there. But it's these people who play with dolls. Not kids, adults. You only see their hands, but they've got to be some weirdies. And, and they play with these dolls and, uh, and then get paid for it somehow. Uh, and then commercials pop up because they're getting viewed by toddlers all over the world who just hit the subscribe button. And, and so they make a ton of money. And, and I noticed that she started like really wanting all these dolls because these commercials would pop up. And so now when I sit her down I, and she's like, I want to watch YouTube. And, I, and the rule is if you're going to watch YouTube, you have to say you can't trick me. You cannot trick me. I will not be happy with that doll. And uh, she has no clue why she's saying that. And she might need counseling when she's older, but we're going to get, it's going to work. And, and so I'm seeing how, how it's, it's in every part of our lives. Like, like capitalism is a, is a solution. Socialism is a solution. Big government, no government, little government. And we're placing all of our hopes in these things rather than looking at the gospel and viewing these things through the lens of the gospel. 
and it keeps people from worshiping God. I think, I think Satan paints beautiful pictures and beautiful stories. And I don't think we think of that because our idea of Satan is incorrect. Our, our idea of spiritual warfare is, is of the armor, but Satan is not the monster under your bed. He's the guy with a solution. He's the guy who's going to make you feel like everything you desired can be fulfilled, and he's going to give it to you. I mean, don't we see that in the, the wilderness story with Christ? I'll give you all of the world. Just don't, don't fulfill your mission, Christ. I can give you all the world. And what's interesting is Jesus didn't say he couldn't. He just said he wouldn't. I think the biggest story, this false narrative that that the world gives for us to to pull us away is consumerism. Uh, I think that there are, are many, many, many Christians who go to church and they think that they're worshiping God. They really genuinely believe that they're worshiping God, but they're really worshiping themselves. And at a moment's notice, they will abandon that community or abandon God when they don't get what they want. I think that's why you see so many Christians hopping from churches on a, re- a regular basis. I also think that, that the church at large has perpetuated that cycle. Uh, being a pastor, I get notice after notice of 10 ways to grow your church or five ways to create a better visitor experience or, or whatever, and they give all these solutions. A lot of them are uh, talk less, have uh, bigger, more fun programs. Give them free stuff is a huge thing. Um, Better worship, less speaking. And I have yet to read one where it's like the, an ad for making your church grow that says, actually preach the gospel. It doesn't, they don't do that. And, and as I continue to read these things, it's all about, can we grow the big thing and we need to make the people happy? And the church perpetuates a group of people who can speak the Christian language but probably are worshiping themselves. And Satan's done that. We've listened to it because we like it, right? I mean, if I preached an hour and a half sermon every week, it, well, some of you would like that a lot, actually. Um, and you, you need counseling like Rosie. Um, that's the truth. Um, but man, I think the church would probably struggle a little bit. What if we had just really terrible worship? What if it was me leading hymns with that little J thing the Baptists do? Would you come? And I think, man, we need to really start thinking about these things because if, if we're just trying to, to have a good church experience, are we worshiping Christ or are we worshiping what I experience and what I desire? That's the world. The second way I think that the kingdom of this world fights against the kingdom of Christ for my love is to tell me things, tell me lies so that I would distrust God. We see that in the garden with Eve, right? God didn't say that. You'll have all knowledge. And and so now I want to take take it from like this big conceptual idea, okay? Governments are influenced. Advertising and commercialism and finances, all these things are trying to pull you into rhythms of worshiping something other than God, just to be okay with God, but I'm really devoting myself to here. But what about on the personal level? Have you been lied to about who you are? 
what you could be. Does God really love you? Is that a thing? And, and Satan does it very well, and, and, and the world does it very well, because it usually attacks you while you're young, through good things. And it just creeps in there. I, I don't know if God really loves me. The parable of the, not the parable, when, when Jesus calls the little children, I, I think he called us to be like them, not because they had, because he's such a, a loving father, though he is, or because he wants them around. I think they had the audacity to think that he wanted them. And I think one of the, the great lies is that, man, you're not good enough. God doesn't really love you. And I think that's a big part of, of the rhythms of our lives being worked out with the gospel. And so the world, I believe in, in 1 John chapter 5, is the system under the influence of Satan opposing God, offering stories about what will satisfy you or about who you are so that you will not worship God. And I just want to pause for a second and ask, have you gotten trapped into a false narrative? Like, honestly, assess your life. What are you really chasing? Or have you gotten wrapped up in, in a story that has lied about who you are? A story that promises maybe to, to answer all of your desires if you just believe that more than the gospel that says total satisfaction and complete joy and wholeness is found only in God. We live our lives in, in a world of stories. Uh, I just finished uh, where the, this is not in my notes, I'm going on a tangent, but I think it's worth it. Um, has anybody read Where the Crawdads Sing? No. Oh, I'm going to look super smart. Um, I, I listened to an audio book, so I guess it's not that smart because I listened to it and didn't read it. Uh, but I had a friend who, who read it, and she was like, you know, Nick, the writing on this is not great. It's like, it's not epic writing. It's not the best book. It's, it's a bestseller. I'm like, huh. So that's why I listened to it. I was like, I want to see what, what she means, because she's very intelligent, and, and I have things I can learn from her. And, and the story is about, can I tell you the story? Yeah. Uh, I have the microphone, so I can. Uh, the story is about this little girl who, who has an abusive father, and because her father is abusive, he's a drunk, his, his, his plans didn't work. And so he's very aggressive and, and, and always abusing the family. And, and one by one, the older siblings leave, and eventually the mother leaves, and she's alone with this abusive father, and eventually he leaves. She's isolated and abandoned and alone. And... And she's learning to survive, and, and she makes some African-American friends who begin to help her out and, and get her along. And, and she's just a little girl, though, five or six, and, and so they're there faithfully for her every year. And all she wants to do is, is to have friends, but she's out and where the crawdads sing, in the middle of nowhere, in the bayou. So she becomes weird. She feels like she doesn't belong anywhere, and, and so she, she gets close to relationships, but eventually always runs away from them, and, and then finally someone really reaches out, and she thinks, man, this person is, is going to be my family, and they're going to be my love, and we're going to fall in love and grow up and get married, and, and he abandons her. So she looks for another, and, 
And as she grows and develops, then someone tries to sexually assault her, but she gets away. And as the book comes to a close, this guy dies. And of course, everybody's like, it's that weird Bayou girl. But she's got an alibi, and it turns out she really made a life for herself. And because she lived in the bayou for so long, she really knew all the, the nature and, and drew up some books and, and, and created some scientific discoveries. It's a little thing. And, and so she was meeting with her editor in a different state, and it couldn't have been her. And, and so she gets off the hook. And then in the end, you find out she did kill him. Uh, and she got the, the first love of her life that really just abandoned her. Well, he never did. He was always just waiting for her. And I thought, that's an all right book. Um, but what an interesting concept to, to write a book about feeling isolated, feeling alone, like you don't belong. That sounds like pretty much what I hear from people every day. To, to, to look, and, and, and as the, the, the African-American community was reaching out to her, what, what she witnesses is the, the Caucasian population oppressing them. Well, that sounds like something we are dealing with. She's almost sexually assaulted. Man, I remember a movement very recently that just did that and brought that to light. But she got rid of the oppressor, the, 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 the perpetrator, and, and just... Wasted him. He's out of the life, which is kind of what we've done with all of the celebrities who've done that. But in the end, she makes herself famous for writing. She accomplishes it on her own without support, and she does get the love of her life, and so it all kind of works out. It sounds to me like that is the American liturgy. That's, those are the stories we're listening to. No wonder why this is a bestseller, because it's all the movements we just systematically worked through, and it's what we believe. No one's going to be there. I'm going to have to make it on my own, but I will make it. And, and man, maybe I'll get the love that I've always wanted, and maybe I'll, I'll be successful, and we need to get, get the oppressors out of here. Just annihilate them. Maybe these are just systems of the world that aren't offering any redemption. Maybe the truth is that there is a gospel, a real good news that God is going to redeem all of those things, that you actually are wanted and you do have a place to belong, that, that God will be there for your hurts and wounds. And, and if you are a perpetrator, there's hope for you in redemption, even for you. But there's also justice. That God knows the, the numbers of the hairs on your head and he's going to provide for you. The world offers us a very bleak narrative, but temporarily it sounds great. The gospel, the gospel offers us something better than the world. And that's why John says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So if the world is offering us a narrative that is in competition to the gospel, but I believe falls flat and leads us away from worshiping God and and leaves us in the kingdom of darkness, 
in the end does not fulfill us, how do I overcome that? That is the question. So I'm going to read 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it look like to overcome the world? I'm going to give you an example and then just some three real practical things, and then I'll close this out as fast as I can. Who do we know that overcame the world? Jesus. How did he do that? He died. That's what he did. That's how you overcome the world. You got to die. You're going to die. You need to die. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so here's how you overcome. You cannot overcome on your own. You cannot do it. There's no amount of strength or willpower or scheduling or, or wit that will get you to overcome the world on your own. You have to have the life of Christ. This is why we do things like baptism. It's showing I couldn't do it and I have to die like Christ and I come up alive in Christ, in his power. That's why Paul says it's I don't live, but Christ who lives in me. I I walk in the light because Christ gave me the ability to. Jesus explains to Nicodemus, how do you be born again? Like the spirit's like the wind. It just does stuff. He's here, he's there. You don't know where he's going. He, He brings life. That's how you get life. He says, man, faith is a gift from God, so you can't boast. So Christ makes you alive, and then you live overcoming the world in his power. And I know that's, like, relatively controversial. Uh, Hopefully not that controversial. If you've been coming here for a long time, I'm going to say that probably till I die. But what I will say is that makes a very big God. Like, if I can't do it, God is the one who's strong enough to do it. God is the one who loves me enough to do it. God is the one who actually acts. Like, he doesn't see me like, oh, that's a bummer, but he actually engages with me. That's a good God. I'm the one who has to accomplish this on my own. I've got to somehow save myself and overcome myself. I don't see hope. but a God who gives me the faith to believe in Jesus Christ and, and moves me into the light rather than the darkness and, and sustains that and then gives me rhythms to do so that I can continue in that, that's a good God. So our example is Christ. And the way Christ defeats is that he loves God the Father and obeys God the Father. I do what the Father has sent me to do. And then he loves even his enemies and then he sacrifices himself willingly and sinlessly to prove that he has the power over death and the devil. He resurrects and he ascends into heaven. I can't do those things, but Christ can do them for me. And then I live like Christ lived. I don't think the command to to love is taken lightly. And so there's our example. Here's three practical things. 
Um, I'm going to reread these, and I want you to listen to the, the concept of belief or faith, the idea of love, and the idea of obedience. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? I love what John did here because he took belief or faith love and obedience, and so intertwine them that you can't get them to come apart. A belief affects what we love. Do you believe Christ has been born of God? Everyone who loves the Father loves one another. Belief affects love, and, and love causes action. And, and actually, what we see him do is we have him start with belief, and then he ends it with belief, and smack dab in the middle is commandment surrounded by love. So verses 1, 4, and 5 ask, what story do you believe? Do you believe that Christ is this? Do you have faith? Do you, do you believe a better narrative than your life? Than what, what you're being told by the kingdoms of this world? Verses 1, 2, and 3 ask, what do you love? Challenges you to love. Verse 2 and 3, right in the middle, obedience. And here's, here's what I've been struggling with. How do I know I have actually overcome? Like, how do I live in that, right? Because honestly, I can say, intellectually, by faith, I know that Christ is making me overcome. I, I believe these things. I believe he's given me faith. I believe that he's, he's transferred me from darkness to light, that I'm, I'm given a new nature. I'm new in him. He is empowering me. I believe those into intellectually. But what I see is that I stumble over and over and over and over again, and I want to know how do I get out of that? How do you know, honestly, what you actually believe? Do I actually believe this? Because my life, my life seems to struggle, and... and what John pushes us by putting obedience in the middle? Yes, what do you do? What do you actually do? Because what you do is what you worship. What you give yourself to, what you spend your money on, what you spend your time on, your talents, your emotions, biblically, that's what you worship. I, we, we like to divvy up the time together, and we say, oh, we worship, and then we have teaching. Those are both worship. You walk in and you greet somebody, and that's still a form of worship. All of life is God's. So all of life, you're worshiping something. So what do you do? Because what you do is going to tell you what you love. And it's going to tell you what you actually believe, what story you believe in this world. And so I, I want to leave us in that tension, because I've been there for like a month. And you're going to be there two minutes with me. What do you believe? Do you, believe a, do you believe a lie we've been given by the world that you are unacceptable, unloved, not good enough? That you better work really hard or God will never accept you? Do you believe that you could finally find fullness and joy if you just had this relationship or, or this amount of money or this job? Or, or do you believe 
the good news of Christ, that he's redeeming all broken things, and, and he's, he's calling people into relationship with him. What does your life actually say? What do you give your time to, your emotion to? And so I'm, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to leave two minutes of silence. We do this every week to consider these things and to talk to God about these things. And then we're going to rejoice in the grace of God by looking at communion. Father, I am amazed. The more and more I look into your word and the more and more I look at the world around me about how I see these two kingdoms warring, these two stories given to us and how easy it is to be trapped into one. I'm amazed about the lies that I've believed about myself that were untrue and told to me when I was young, how I projected it on you. So as we enter this time of silence, Father, I ask that you would reveal to us, and you can do anything, the depths of our hearts. What do we actually love? What are we actually doing? What do we believe? What are we worshiping? I ask that you would call us into overcoming the world continuously. What you do informs what you love and kind of tells you a lot about what you believe. And in order to work those things out practically, historically, and what Jesus has given us are specific things to do to help form our hearts to love him more. And that's one of the cool things, one, about studying church history is they have all these cool things that help reform us. But reading through scripture, you see, man, They had all these ways of engaging us. And Jesus knew that his disciples were going to struggle uh, after he had resurrected and ascended into heaven, and he gave them kind of a ritual to do with one another, something important, a sacrament, something sacred. And he gathered them into a room, and he took bread, and he ripped it and said, this is my flesh broken for you. And he dipped it into the wine and said, this is my blood poured out for you. Whenever you're together, do this in remembrance of me. Remember the better story, the God who becomes a man to die for you, to offer you total satisfaction in relationship with him one day, who redeems all the brokenness, whether you've been wounded or you're a perpetrator, the God who acts. So as we sing and give, we invite you to come and take communion. If you've never taking communion before or you're not a Christian and think you want to follow Jesus, come and find me and I'll take it with you. It'll be cool. Uh, Feel free to worship in the back or standing or sitting or dancing. We encourage you to to worship as God made you. and, And when you give, give out of love to Christ rather than out of duty. Uh, We give joyfully and regularly and out of our hearts. And so, uh, yeah, let's, let's thank God for his grace and giving us communion and a new story.